This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon, I'm Emma Alberici. What would happen if we opened the borders? Forget about border protection and then imagine if in that one act we solved the refugee crisis and we also improved economic growth. Well, that's the thesis promoted by economist and writer Philippe Legrain. He's a former special advisor to the World Trade Organization and economic advisor to the president of the European Commission. He's now a senior visiting fellow at the London School of Economics European Institute. He's the founder of international think tank, the Open Political Economy Network. Philippe is a columnist for Project Syndicate and foreign policy and was also a writer for The Economist. He's written four highly successful books, including one titled Immigrants, Your Country Needs Them. After Philippe's address, you'll all have a chance to be in conversation with him. So I'll invite you all after he has finished speaking to make your way to the microphones, the two of them at the front of the room, if you'd like to ask a question. But for now, help me to welcome Philippe Legrain. Good afternoon. Thank you, Emma, for that uh, kind introduction. And thank you all uh, for being here. Imagine that you were born in the Australian outback and weren't allowed to move anywhere else. You'd have to go to the local school, regardless of whether it was any good. You couldn't go to university. Your work options would be limited, and so would your choice of people to share your life with. How you might wish you'd been born in Sydney with all the opportunities here. Now, that example may sound extreme, but in many respects, it's less extreme than the predicament of people born in a poor country and denied the right to move to a richer one. Because stuck in the Australian outback, you'd still have a high standard of living by global standards, decent health care, the protection of the rule of law, and so on. But if you were stuck in an African village, let alone a Syrian one, your prospects would be much bleaker. In fact, even a bright, hard-working and enterprising African woman is likely to lead a worse life in every respect than a lazy dimwit born in Australia, America or Europe. Because the fact is, the world is anything but flat. The single most important determinant of your life chances is not how talented you are, nor indeed how hard you work. It's where you were born. And migration can change that. Freedom of movement is one of the most important human rights. According to Article 13 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, everyone has the right to leave any country, including their own. And what is the right to leave a country unless you can enter another. The freedom to move is an escape route when things go wrong. Persecution, war, famine, economic crisis, climate change. But migration is not just about desperation. It's also about aspiration to a better life to be with the one you love, to live in a society where you can be openly gay and men and women are equal, to broaden your horizons and experience the world and much, much more besides. Even in prosperous 
peaceful countries, people tend to place a very high value on freedom of movement. When asked what they value most about the European Union, Europeans' top answer by far is the freedom to travel, study and work anywhere across the EU's 28 member states, from Britain to Bulgaria and Poland to Portugal. And after the tragic Brexit vote, many young Britons were in tears at being stripped of a vital freedom and all the opportunities tied to it. Yet globally, the right to move is a privilege of a few. The rich, the highly educated, those fortunate enough to have family in a country that they want to move to, and those allowed in to do jobs that people in rich countries no longer want to do. As Australians, you have much greater freedom to move than Africans. You can spend a year or two working abroad in Britain, exploring Europe, backpacking across Asia, or studying in the States. But unless you have a university degree and good job prospects, your possibilities are still limited. Denying people the right to move has a huge cost in lives stunted and lost. More people have died trying to cross from Mexico to the US over the past decade than died on 9-11. Each year, thousands of people drown trying to reach Europe. And those who try to reach Australia without permission are imprisoned in offshore detention camps in awful conditions. By denying desperate people the opportunity to cross borders legally, we are driving some to risk death. And of course, we'd all rather that migrants wouldn't die. But implicitly, many voters and politicians consider it a price worth paying to keep people out. That sounds shocking, and it is. But how else can we explain the general indifference at the deaths that our immigration controls cause? Why is the official response always that we must remain tough in enforcing our border controls, rather than questioning whether the system makes sense? And it's not just the deaths. There's the soaring cost of border controls and bureaucracy. Barbed wire fences, watchtowers, gunships on patrol, a criminalized people smuggling industry, an expanding shadow economy where illegal migrants are vulnerable to exploitation, labor laws are broken and taxes go unpaid, an undermining of faith in government, a corrosion of attitudes towards immigrants who are seen as lawbreakers rather than hardworking and enterprising people, and increasing limitations on everyone's freedom as governments justify new controls to try to limit immigration. Now, some people claim that even tougher measures could put a stop to irregular migration. But that just isn't true. Documents can be forged or stolen, visas overstayed, people smuggled, officials bribed. I mean, East Germany shot people who tried to cross the Berlin Wall, and still some did. If we continue along this path, we will end up in a police state. So isn't it time that we thought again? Now, supporters of the status quo have the immense advantage that immigration controls seem normal. And because that we think that we're generally reasonable people, 
they must surely be reasonable too. And in any case, they're surely necessary. To suggest otherwise seems like a very dangerous idea indeed. I mean, how could we ever live without immigration controls? Like death and taxes, they're part of the natural order of things. Except they're not. For most of human history, they didn't exist. Since all humans originate in Africa, all our ancestors were migrants at some point. Even when modern states began to develop, they scarcely had control over their borders. By the 19th century, freedom of movement was a fact of life. Millions of mostly poor and uneducated Europeans up sticks to the Americas and Australia. Italian peasants crisscrossed the Atlantic each year to pick the harvest in Argentina. In that first area of globalization, the free movement of labor went, went hand in hand with the free movement of capital, goods, and services. Freedom of movement wasn't just a fact of life. It was official government policy. In 1872, Britain's Foreign Secretary declared that by the existing law of Great Britain, all foreigners have the unrestricted right of entrance and residence in this country. Only in 1905 did Britain impose its first immigration controls to keep out unwanted Jews. Now, of course, that globalized world fell apart after 1914 with the First World War, the Russian Revolution, the Great Depression, the Second World War, the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe, and the Chinese Revolution in 1949. Yet even as recently as the 1950s, people from across Britain's vast Commonwealth were still free to move to the British Isles. A Conservative Home Secretary even asserted that this freedom was an inalienable right. And in recent decades, we've experienced a second era of globalization. Goods, services, money, ideas, technologies cross borders ever more freely. And yet the movement of people remains tightly restricted. In fact, only around 3% of the world population live outside the country where they were born. That's roughly the same proportion as 50 years ago. But there's a big exception to that global rule. In the European Union, 500 million Europeans are free to live, study, work, retire, indeed move for any reason whatsoever across 27 countries. Now, if I'd been here 30 years ago and I'd said to you that East Europeans would soon be free to move to Western Europe, you'd have said I was mad. And yet now we have open borders from Ireland to Bulgaria and Estonia to Spain, and it seems normal. Our concept of normality changes very quickly. 30 years ago, the idea of gay people marrying seemed anything but normal. And yet, now in many countries, it's legal and perfectly normal. So if immigration controls aren't normal, perhaps they aren't reasonable either. I mean, we now consider it unacceptable to discriminate against people on the basis of their gender, their race, their sexuality, and many other factors. So is it really reasonable to discriminate against people 
on the basis of where they happen to be born. During the apartheid era, South Africa was pilloried for allowing white people to live and work wherever they chose, while limiting the jobs that black people could take and forcing them to live in specific places. So is it really reasonable to allow some people to move across borders, but not others? In some countries, it's easier to bring in your foreign pet than your foreign partner. Denmark allows in Afghan puppies and Burmese kittens, but not young Chinese brides. Britain doesn't allow poorer people to bring in their foreign spouses. Is it really reasonable that governments decide who we should share our love life with? I mean, it's like Romeo and Juliet against the backdrop of 21st century bureaucracy. Now, of course, what people deem reasonable is highly subjective. I was once on a TV program about Londoners who had emigrated to Cyprus because they thought there were too many foreigners in London. <laughs> and as if going abroad to escape foreigners wasn't absurd enough, they then ranted and raved about how immigrants in London don't bother to learn the language and don't try to fit in. And this was from Brits in Cyprus who didn't speak a word of Greek, only socialised among fellow Brits, read the Sun newspaper and ate fish and chips. And the fact is, is that, you know, when the situation was pointed out to them, they couldn't or wouldn't accept it. I mean, in effect, their argument boiled down to this. What's okay for us is not okay for them. Psychological studies confirm that opposition to immigration tends to stem from an emotional dislike of foreigners. People then construct seemingly rational arguments to justify their prejudice. When immigrants are working, they're stealing our jobs. When they're out of work, they're sponging off the state. When migrants are poor, they're driving standards down. When they're rich, they're driving prices up. I once debated with a British politician who bemoaned the fact that Poles were supposedly earning misery wages and living in squalid conditions 12 to a room, and then in the next breath, blamed them for rising house prices. I mean, let's face it, immigrants can't win. They're damned if they do, and damned if they don't. So while, of course, it's important to address people's fears and to consider people's arguments, it's also important to see them for what they often are, a rationalization of xenophobia. Okay, so immigration controls are neither normal nor reasonable. Might they still be necessary? If we open the borders, people say, we'll be swamped. Everyone in poor countries would move and our societies would collapse. It's a deep-rooted fear, as if immigrants were the barbarians at the gates. Yet the reality is that most people don't want to move home at all, let alone forever, or many people can't. And those who do move don't all want to go to the same place. Since I wrote my book, Immigrants Your Country Needs Them, I've spoken about immigration around the world. In nearly every country I've been to, 
Many people seem persuaded that everyone in the world wants to move precisely there. <laughs> they can't all be right. And those who were adventurous or desperate enough to uproot themselves generally have plenty to contribute. Once you've made that big leap to try to start a new life in a foreign country, you have every incentive to work hard to build a better future for yourself and your children. Now, those aren't just assertions, because thanks to the recent experiment with freedom of movement in Europe, we also have evidence. Legally, all 100 million people in Poland, Romania, and other poorer parts of Eastern Europe are entitled to move west. How many have actually moved? Only around 4 million. And they moved not to one country, but to a variety of them, Britain, Germany, Italy, Spain, and so on. While some will end up settling for good, most have already gone home. Some people are like international commuters. They spend part of their life in one country and part in another. The fact is, is that most migrants only want to go abroad for a while, to learn English, to gain valuable skills and experience, to amass enough savings to build a house or buy a house back home and start a business. Open doors tend to be revolving ones. Even with restrictions, three quarters of the people who arrived in Britain in 1998 were gone a decade later. Even in a so-called settler country like Australia, most migration is temporary. Yet one of the perversities of our immigration controls is that they end up turning migrants who would like to be temporary into permanent residents. I mean, until 1950, the United States scarcely controlled its border with Mexico. Many Mexicans uh, came to the United States to work, often to pick the harvest, and then went home again. It was only after that the United States started trying to close the border, that that temporary migration started to become permanent. Because if it's illegal and therefore costly and risky to cross a border, then you have an incentive to stay once you've arrived, even if you would prefer to return home with the option to return to that country when, when you might need to. I mean, think about it. If you live in the suburbs of Sydney and commute to work in the city each day, you are a temporary migrant. And if Sydney brought in a law whereby in order to work in the city centre, you had to live there, some of you, many of you, might choose to move rather than settling for a worse job in the suburbs your temporary migration would become permanent. Now, it's also a myth that if we open the borders, pe people in poor countries would all come to claim welfare in richer ones. In 2004, when they opened their doors uh, to East Europeans, Britain and Ireland initially restricted migrants' access to welfare benefits whereas Sweden, which has probably the most generous welfare system on earth, did not. Did most, most, most Poles move to Sweden to claim welfare? No. Only 1% of those who moved went to Sweden, almost, almost all to work not to claim welfare. Around the, evidence, around the world, there's simply no evidence that people move in order to claim welfare. I mean, why would someone who was enterprising enough to move country do so and then 
claim welfare when working is more rewarding. And contrary to the broader fear that migrants would end up a drain on public finances, studies by the OECD and others, including for Australia, show that migrants tend to be net contributors to public finances. They pay more in taxes than they take out in benefits and services. And of course, for a vast country like Australia, they help spread the burden of infrastructure and other public goods over a wider tax base. Now, since none of the myths about open borders are proved to be true, it isn't surprising that the final myth is false too. I can hereby confirm that European society has not collapsed. On the contrary, newcomers do all sorts of things that underpin society, like caring for the young and the old, renovating social housing for the poor, and pulling pints of beer in the pub. And they do all this without taking local people's jobs because there simply isn't a fixed number of jobs to go around. Migrants, like anyone else, doesn't just, don't just take jobs, they also create them when they spend their wages and in complementary lines of work. So a foreign nurse, for example, creates work for local doctors. It's a bit like the fears when women started entering the labour force in large numbers, and men thought, well, if women work, there'll be no jobs left for us men. And the reality now is that most women work, and so do most men. And likewise, studies show that migrants tend not to depress local wages. At this point, you're going to say, OK, fine, but open borders across Europe isn't quite the same thing as open borders globally. And that's true. At the same time, the EU includes Romania, which is poorer than Mexico, and Sweden, which has a higher standard of living than the US. So why wouldn't Europe's experience apply to North America, or indeed, more broadly? I mean, after all, the United States didn't do too badly when millions of poor and uneducated Europeans were arriving there in the 19th century. China hasn't done too badly since it relaxed its internal migration controls and 10 million people, mostly poor and uneducated, move from the countryside to the city each year. In fact, studies suggest that by enabling people to move to more technologically advanced and politically stable countries, abolishing border controls globally could more than double the size of the world economy. And even if that's too radical for you, merely loosening immigration controls would deliver huge benefits. No other public policy change comes close. For receiving countries like Australia, the main economic benefit of migration is the fact that migrants are different. And their differences tend to complement local needs and conditions. They may have skills that not enough locals have, like medical training or the ability to speak fluent Mandarin. They may have contacts and know-how that open up opportunities for trade and investment. They may be more willing to do jobs that locals no longer want to do, like farm work or care for the elderly, which is the area of fastest employment growth in advanced economies. They may help provide a wider variety of cultural experiences, a better choice of ethnic restaurants, and stimulate all sorts of cultural innovation. They may simply be young and hardworking, which is a huge bonus for societies with ever-increasing numbers of pensioners to pay for. Having moved once, they tend to be more willing to move again, and that enables the economy to adapt better to change. And crucially, their diverse perspectives and experiences can help spark new ideas 
and their dynamism tends to make them more entrepreneurial than most. Now, immigrants' contribution is vast, but inherently unpredictable. I mean, what good could possibly come from America admitting a Kenyan man who grew up as a goat herd called Barack Obama Sr.? Or nobody could have guessed when he arrived as a child refugee from the Soviet Union that Sergey Brin was going to go on and co-found Google. And had he been turned away, America and the world would never have realized the opportunity that had been missed. How many people like Barack Obama Sr. and Sergey Brin are turned away? And at what cost? Opening our borders would not just be good for migrants themselves and for our societies. It would also do more to help the poor than any other policy change by Western governments. More than lowering our trade barriers, more than cancelling developing countries' debt, more than increasing overseas aid. The money that migrants send home, roughly 432 billion US dollars officially, more than that informally, dwarfs the 132 billion that Western governments give in aid. And those remittances aren't wasted on weapons or siphoned off into Swiss bank accounts. They go straight into the pockets of local people. They pay for food, clean water, and medicines. They slash poverty, enable children to stay in schools, fund small businesses, and benefit the local economy more broadly. And when migrants return home, as many do, they bring with them new skills, new ideas, and the money to develop them. So you see, for example, that Africa's first internet cafes were opened by migrants returning from Europe. So if you believe that the world is unfair and that we ought to be doing more to help the poor, you ought to be, able, you ought to be campaigning to allow them to come work here. Because let's face it, the immigration system we have now, where the rich and the educated can move increasingly freely, but the poor are tied to the land where they were born, like feudal serfs, amounts to a system of global apartheid. It's economically stupid, politically harmful, and morally wrong. It must go. And I think we can inspire ourselves from the 19th century efforts to abolish slavery worldwide. Because slavery went from common, legal, and acceptable to rare, illegal, and unacceptable worldwide within a few decades. So let's make the campaign for freedom of movement the anti-slavery campaign of the 21st century. It's time to set people free. Thank you. I'm very happy to kick off the questions, but if you have some of your own, please feel free to make your way to the microphones, one on either side of the room here, and I'll, uh, I'll come to you shortly. Philippe Legrain, uh, as far as dangerous ideas go, uh, I guess the idea for our government 
of opening our borders is about as dangerous as it could get politically, and they would say also economically and uh, from a, a national security perspective. If you were advising our government, what would you tell them to do about our current situation? You've written about it. You've told us that uh, it's a bogus claim that you're saving lives by keeping people in Nauru and Manus Island. What, what would you do? Well, I think there's a uh, schizophrenia um, at the heart of Australian government and to a certain extent uh, the Australian people, which is that on the one hand, Australia uh, is a uh, successful multicultural society which is open generally um, uh, to the migrants and people of diverse backgrounds who are here. Uh, on the other hand, this kind of paranoia about a certain class of people who are arriving um, by boat um, and a fear that somehow uh, these people in particular pose uh, a huge threat um, and that somehow you know, Australia could be uh, overrun um, uh, if it adopted uh, a more uh, humane approach. Um, and I think that when you're dealing with such you know, deep emotions, it's hard to come up with a rational policy. What we do know um, is that the policy that the Australian government uh, is pursuing uh, is deeply wrong. Um, I mean, to start off with, it's prohibitively expensive. Um, you know, it costs 430,000 Australian dollars uh, to intern each person in inhumane conditions. Just imagine if you spent a tiny fraction of that on welcoming them to Australia to start working and contributing to society. It's also illegal uh, in the sense that, yes, the High Court here has said that uh, imprisoning asylum seekers is legal under the Australian Constitution, uh, but it's certainly illegal uh, under the UN Convention and, Pro uh, and a Protocol uh, on the Status of Refugees, of which Australia is a signatory. Um, which is that you do not have the right to intern people indefinitely uh, for no good reason. Um, and um, above all, it's just morally wrong. Um, it's a, a, a stain on Australia's con conscience and, and um, international reputation. And then you look at how many people are involved, and it's actually very small. In fact, there are far more asylum speakers who arrive by air um, without permission and claim um, asylum than the relatively few who arrive by sea. And yet this is blown up to be something of absolutely monumental uh, proportion. So I say, you know, whether it is in terms of sheer humanity uh, or simple common sense, um, uh, these uh, uh, prisons, let's, let's call them what they are, uh, ought to be closed. And yet... The government has made much mileage of the fact that it's, this government's been in power three years and managed to stop the boats, that 50,000 people had come to Australia illegally, to use their, their terms, in the um, six or seven years prior to that, and that, of course, it would open the floodgates, the pull factor, if you allowed people to come straight to Australia and, and be settled here, and, and you would give succour to people smugglers. Well, I mean, the first thing is that even 50,000 and a population of 24 million uh, is, not, is not huge, uh, especially because the people who are arriving um, uh, are not a threat or a burden, but you know, people who have risked their lives and have a lot to contribute. Um, so, um, uh, but in any case, um, to say that uh, international law states very clearly that asylum seekers have the right to cross a border without permission uh, in order to seek asylum. Um, so the fact that Australia said that didn't give them permission to do so is actually completely irrelevant under international law. Um, uh, so I can see that in terms of politics, uh, in this audience there is uh, revulsion and opposition to it. In another audience, um, uh, this uh, seems like a tough policy which is keeping uh, Australia safe. And unfortunately, pay, uh, politicians are catering um, uh, to those other views. But I think there needs to be um, a, a, both a rational and an emotional argument which says that this is uh, a wrong policy, a harmful policy, and a policy that must change. 
You mentioned that uh, the free flow of people through Europe had not led to the collapse of Europe, and yet many people would say Brexit was a direct response to the free flow of people, which was upsetting, uh, you know, many parts of Britain. Uh, and also now you have many other uh, political parties, the rise of the, the far right throughout Europe, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, in France, in, in Italy, uh, a, a rebel party is now also calling to leave the European Union. It does seem that the free flow of people has caused great discord within Europe. In fact, Angela Merkel, a year after inviting in a million or so people, has now said perhaps that was a mistake. Well, you're right that there are some people who are opposed uh, to immigration uh, and that they blame immigrants for all sorts of problems um, which are not actually caused by migrants. So, you know, they may have lost uh, their jobs uh, either because of technology or because of trade um, and they see uh, a migrant next door with a job and they blame that migrant uh, for their job loss. They may see that there are pressure on local uh, public services uh, in part because of uh, you know, budget cuts in recent years. Um, uh, and they see that, well, if there weren't these migrants here, we'd have better access to healthcare, even though actually migrants predominantly work in the health service and they pay more in taxes and they take out in benefits, so actually they're subsidising everyone else's public services. Or we've had this terrible financial crisis, Australia hasn't suffered from it much, but you know, a terrible financial crisis which has meant um, uh, you know, big falls in wages. Um, uh, and again, uh, those falls in wages are, are, are wrongly um, attributed uh, to migrants. So you're right, there is a problem of perception, um, but there isn't a problem um, uh, in uh, reality. Uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, there aren't enough politicians who are willing to um, uh, make the case um, uh, and to confront uh, the anti-immigrant um, uh, ideas that are, that, that are put across. Very often what happens is that politicians you know, um, tend to uh, echo uh, far-right views and therefore legitimise them. And are those views driven entirely by xenophobia, do you think? As I said, in part they're due to um, uh, people misdiagnosing what the source of their um, uh, economic problems are. Um, in part they're due to um, uh, fear of change. So you'll see you know, elderly British people uh, who uh, look back to the 1950s um, as being a better age, in part because they were young then. Um, and <laughs> well, no, it's a natural, natural tendency, and you, you lump it all together, and, and the most visible aspect of the change is actually you know, um, the migrant. Um, uh, but the reality is, is that you know, closing the border and throwing, throwing back the migrants won't make people young again, and it won't bring back the economy and society that we had then, which actually, in many respects, you know, was much worse than the society we have now, whether it's for um, women, gay people, or, or so on. But um, in any case, so there's, in part, um, economic pain, there's part social um, uh, conservatism, um, uh, and then, then there's also um, you know, xenophobia, which is manifested in all sorts of... Um, uh, different ways. Now, you recently wrote that investing $1 in helping refugees can yield nearly $2 in economic benefits within five years. Tell us how that's calculated. Well, that's from the first study which I did for my new think tank called Open, uh, which was co-published by um, the Tent Foundation. Um, and it was looking in particular about you know, the impact of refugees arriving uh, in Europe, but it's also it's a global study, so it also has... Um, uh, Australian evidence, and you can download it from the website opennetwork.net. Um, basically, the bulk of the uh, benefits initially um, come from the spending on uh, refugees, which acts like a fiscal stimulus. Um, you know, it's mainly spent on local goods and services. That increases local demand in the economy, uh, and that boosts economic growth. And then the second element comes when uh, refugees um, start working. Um, uh, and start, start uh, businesses, you know, start paying taxes, uh, and so on, and, and, and the further benefits uh, that come from that. Of course, the moral argument is impossible uh, to argue against, but yet when we see 
France, for instance, with three major terrorist attacks in 18 months, and then hear that one of the terrorists came in as a refugee, it puts your whole effort back some decades, I imagine. Uh, you're right that, um, well, first of all, what's happened in, in France and elsewhere and, and Germany and uh, other countries uh, is uh, tragic and awful. Um, and uh, at the same time, by blaming Syrian refugees for it um, is you know, a mistake. I mean, the vast majority of Syrian refugees are fleeing the terrorism of and the brutality of Islamic State within Syria, or indeed the barrel bombs of uh, the Assad um, uh, regime. The fact that some terrorists may have infiltrated themselves among the refugees doesn't mean we should turn them away. I mean, some Nazis pretended to be Jews and infiltrated themselves with other Jews after the Second World War doesn't mean we turn away the Jews. Um, in any case, um, you look at the vast majority of people who've committed these terrible acts, and actually there are people born in France, not people who arrived as refugees. So the idea that you turn everyone away because there might be some people pretending refugees is you know, um, uh, completely uh, bad policy. And yet it's a, it's a theory that's promulgated everywhere, that, that, that people are kept out of our country to keep us safe. Sure. I mean, there is a, 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 uh, this idea that if you close the border somehow, um, uh, you're safe. Um, and you know, the, the evidence suggests um, otherwise. How do you explain, it's been a year, I think, since we saw the image of the little boy whose limp body had washed up on the shore in Turkey. There was an international uh, kind of feeling of despair and grief and, and a, 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 a sort of spontaneous, certainly in Europe, reaction to that. But it seems to have dissipated and, and, if anything, reversed. And you've got Donald Trump saying, uh, to great applause, that he would send people back to Syria if they dared come to the United States. You're right that there was um, a very positive reaction to the tragic death of Ilan Kurdi um, and um, you know, seeing a toddler washed up uh, on the beach. Uh, you're also right that it didn't last um, that long. That said, Donald Trump was saying outrageous things even last September when everyone else was... Even um, before that. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> it, Donald Trump is just, um, you know, a nasty son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> and frankly, we shouldn't be listening to, 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 to what he's saying. Um, let's hope that the American... But unfortunately... Let, let's, hope, let's hope that the American people... Uh, you know, and I think that they will have the, the, the common sense to, to you know, in many cases, hold their nose, but still think that you know, Hillary is clearly the lesser evil. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's making them all harden their stance. Even the Democrats are hardening their stance. Sure, I mean, that's the tragic thing about this, and it's the same with the de debate about immigration in Europe, which is um, that, you know, you have uh, the extremists on the far right saying things, and instead of other people... Um, uh, coming out and confronting those arguments, they think that the best way is to, to, to pander to those arguments. But then if you pander to the argument, you legitimise it, and then people go, well, why should I w w vote for the watered-down sort of me-too um, faking opposition to immigration? I might as well vote for the hardline real thing. Um, so I don't think that that's the right approach. T to be fair, the Democrats in the United States are not doing that. You know, Hillary Clinton has said very clearly she wants immigration reform in her first 100 days. So I, in, in this case, I don't think um, uh, that she is um, uh, tailoring her message to, to Donald Trump. For those countries that are the poorer countries that uh, lose people to the free flow um, of labour and, and, uh, and, and refugee flows and asylum seekers. What happens to those countries if you open the borders and poor people flee to richer countries? What happens to the countries that are left behind? Well, the, you're talking about fears of a brain drain. Um, worldwide studies generally find that unless you have a very high proportion of people leaving, um, that actually... Um, the economic benefits of people leaving outweigh 
um, the costs. I, if, if there is you know, lots of people who are in poverty in some area, and many of them migrate, whether it is to the capital city or abroad, you tend to have local wages um, uh, rising, uh, and the money they send home in turn helps them. But even if um, it were to damage local prospects, I still think people have a right to move. So imagine that you were born you know, in the outback or in a Welsh village, um, uh, and you, know, you want to go away to, um, to the capital city in order to go to university um, uh, and um, to get the job that you want. Should you be denied it because it might harm uh, the village in which you were born? And I would say, no, you have a right, right to move. But the good news is that, in general, there isn't that trade-off. But even if there was, I would prioritise freedom of movement. Who is it that ought to be screaming loudly in your corner? Is it the United Nations, the UNHCR? Who is it that isn't doing their job of convincing people as eloquently as you have here today? Um, well, I think that um, attitudes towards migration actually um, are changing. Amid all the bad news we're talking about, actually young people who've grown up in a diverse society tend to think that diversity is normal, and not just the normal, desirable, and therefore have a much more positive attitude um, uh, towards immigration generally, um, uh, and therefore I'm optimistic uh, about the future. And yet, I, I was mentioning this to you when we were backstage. It feels like there's a sort of collective amnesia about what happened in World War II, where we, we look back and are absolutely horrified about the idea of six million Jewish people having been killed and very few countries, including Australia, having opened their doors to uh, persecuted Jews then. Isn't there an entirely possible scenario that we look back in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and see the same thing happened in Syria and we ignored it? Well, I think what's happening in Syria is, is absolutely uh, devastating. Uh, by one account, more than, half more than half of people have been forced out of their home, mostly within Syria, but also abroad. Uh, and, you know, the pictures that you, know, you see on TV are only a fraction of, of the, the terrible um, suffering that's being inflicted. And yes, of course, uh, the global response, not just Europe, but Europe, America, the Gulf states, uh, China, Australia, uh, is completely insufficient um, to uh, the biggest humanitarian tragedy um, in the world at the moment. And for all the talk of the uh, opposition in Europe now to the, the, the huge flows that came last year, they're still coming, aren't they, to Europe? Well, that's and being the thing. welcomed. That is, but the thing is, is that, yeah, because uh, last year was, uh, the pictures were so dramatic, um, uh, and since then there was a dirty deal done between the EU and Turkey, numbers are lower, it's kind of disappeared as a media story. But the reality is, is that people are still coming. They're primarily now coming, instead of hopping over from Turkey to Greece, they're taking a much more dangerous route uh, from uh, Libya uh, to Italy, a longer and more dangerous route. As a result, more people um, are drowning and dying um, uh, than uh, before, uh, and people are still arriving in large numbers. For the most part, I mean, they're less than last year, but still in large numbers, uh, they're mostly in, in Italy, and therefore it's a political issue in Italy, but, but not more broadly. Um, but, uh, but it's something that uh, is, is going to come back again. And I wonder what, what role you think uh, language plays in the political dialogue around immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers because what I found interesting when I was in Lampedusa uh, during the Arab Spring when we saw uh, Lampedusa is the little island that's actually closer to Libya than it is to Italy though it's Italian and their resident population is about 5,000 and over one, the course of one weekend close to 10,000 asylum seekers arrived on that little island and you would think that people would be quite angry and uh, and uh, and 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 uh, and not and hostile, but instead you had these families cooking big vats of pasta and and you know welcoming people and bringing clothes to the dock, and there was this overwhelming outpour of uh, of affection for these people, and and the government in Italy calls them migrants. They don't call them asylum seekers or refugees. They just call them migrants. And whereas in this country, we call them illegals. And what role do you think that plays in terms of how the populace feels about the subject? Well, on the first point, I think that the refugee crisis has brought out you know, the best and the worst in people. You've seen you know, many people um, 
with an outpouring of, of, of generosity and humanity, people are going to volunteer, people opening up their homes, um, um, people um, you know, making food and donating money. Uh, at the same time, you've seen um, uh, really uh, nasty reactions, um, uh, fear and loathing, uh, and so on. And you're right that language is, is important, i.e., um, in order to stop treating people like human beings, i.e., in order to stop you putting yourself in their shoes and thinking, well, hang on about, hang on a minute, if I was in that situation, how would I want the world to behave to me? You have to treat them as the other and dehumanize them um, uh, and make it something, something alien and threatening and therefore justify um, the inhumane way in which people are often treated. And in fact, where... And the same thing is obviously true for the people who are locked up um, uh, in uh, Nauru and Manus. Well, I was going to say, journalists are not allowed there and, uh, and people who speak out can be... Uh, who've worked there can be sued. So it's a, um, it's a troubling situation all round. But unfortunately, we're out of time. I, I might be able to slip in a few questions if anyone's got any, but hopefully we've covered a lot of ground. And if you want to ask a question, you have to come down to these microphones on the side. Okay. Oh, yes. Sorry. On. Hello. Yes. Um, I grew up in South Africa. My grandparents escaped from Lithuania as Jews uh, to survive the pogroms there. Um, one of the problems in the national parks in South Africa is the elephants pull up the mapani trees whole and throw them on the ground so they can feed on the little berries and then have nothing to eat next year. And in my lifetime, the uh, people who look after them have not been successful in persuading them that's not a good idea. Um, I'm kind of losing hope. Do you have hope that it is possible to persuade our political, our politician elephants that it's not a good idea to pull up social cohesion by its roots simply so they can feed on the barriers of power for a short period of time? because it doesn't seem to be happening, and I wonder if you and how you maintain your hope. <laughs> well, I think politicians uh, respond to incentives, um, and the incentive that they want is to be re-elected re -elected and uh, to, to gain and keep power. Um, and therefore, the way to change politicians' behaviour um, is partly about persuasion, but it's also about mobilising people so that they have an incentive to behave differently. And I'm optimistic, you know, I'm pessimistic in the short term, but optimist, optimistic longer term, um, uh, that um, uh, you know, younger people who take a more positive attitude um, can, uh, as uh, they mobilise uh, and you know, vote in larger numbers, um, uh, change things for the better. Sorry, this lady over here. I'm so sorry. I can, cannot see very well whether you were there. Um, I'm very taken by your idea, Philip, but I think it's still rather utopian. Um, in our 21st century, um, migrants are scapegoated for all manner of economic, social, political woes, and in the global age of terror, and I think you touched on that, Emma. Um, the governments need to blame someone. They blame the migrants. If they're not going to blame the migrants, who else can they blame? So my question is how we, how we affect, I guess, uh, similar to you, that change, that, that change in mindset which keeps power, politicians in power. Well, it, it would, it's clearly a, a radical change to the system we have now, though as I've made clear, it's something that um, uh, existed in the past, exists in parts of the world today, and indeed uh, existed between uh, Britain and Ireland. There was complete freedom of movement, even at the time of an IRA um, uh, uh, terrorism campaign, which I grew up with. And at the time, people were perfectly comfortable with having um, freedom of movement between Britain and Ireland uh, and the reality that some of the people moving freely uh, may have been terrorists. And the idea that somehow the way to tackle something, a specific problem like terrorism, is somehow to close borders is, you know, completely um, uh, uh, the wrong approach. But, you know, the way to change, I mean, the way to change politicians is, you know, either uh, you mobilise um, uh, to persuade them to change or new political entrepreneurs enter the field, um, uh, whether it, you know, within parties or in social movements, um, uh, to uh, try to change things um, uh, directly. Over here. There may be some overlap with that question. I'm Carmen, I'm from Mums for Refugees. 
Um, going back to what you said about politicians really want to keep their cushy jobs, then I think it's lovely we get to have this uh, very eloquent and educated debate, and yet we need to find a way to counter the fear and paranoia and ignorant narrow-mindedness, um, which are by definition irrational. So do you have any advice on, on how that can be achieved? Well, I think one, I mean, actually in terms of the fact that you have such a um, finely balanced um, situation in Parliament here means actually that you only need to persuade a few pivotal uh, MPs actually to have a hell of a lot of power. I mean, the government is actually so precariously balanced that you, can, you convince one or two MPs to say, well, our support for you is conditional on these changes. And suddenly, as I said, the, you know, the people who want to stay in power suddenly listen um, to what you have to say. So I think actually, actually that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a situation of potentially um, uh, immense leverage. Otherwise, um, uh, the battle has to go on in order to persuade um, uh, people uh, to put themselves uh, in the shoes of the people um, who are suffering as refugees. Um, like the gentleman there, that in his, his experience, you wouldn't look at him now and think of him uh, as um, uh, a refugee. Uh, and yet, it's part of the lived experience and the lived experience of the families of many people around the world. They aren't the other. Uh, they're people like uh, you and me. They have perfectly normal aspirations. Uh, they're not a threat. They are, they're people who have a lot to contribute. Uh, this gentleman over here. Um, my question essentially centers on the whole concept of like the first mover advantage. And I tend to find that the refugee policies, it centers on the idea of the first mover disadvantage as such, if that makes sense. Um, I'm not sure I understand. Could so you in, the, in the sense that uh, as with the European Union and you had a vast like a membership of countries where people were free to go and leave, as you spoke of, which I think is important, I think a lot of the Australian hesitation stems from the idea that they don't want to be the first person or the only person to do it and therefore be the only attractive option. And that, that sort of stems also into like environmental policy where people don't want to be the one country that has a lack of economic advantage from putting caps on emissions. I'm not sure if I'm articulating this very well, well but... Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the reality is, is that Australia is clearly not um, either the first, the last or the only option. You know, uh, there are 60 million forcibly displaced people worldwide, roughly 22 million refugees. Six in seven of them are in developing countries. Um, not rich countries. Australia takes a tiny fraction of those who go to rich countries. It could be much more generous towards refugees. It's miles away from the rest of the world, and the idea that you're going to have millions of people arriving here <laughs> is, you know, complete nonsense. So, you know, it could, it could tomorrow announce to take um, many, many more people than it's taking now, uh, and it would not just be the right thing to do, it would end up being good for the economy and the Australian society. Um, I worked in the Nauru Detention Centre um, and saw the pain and suffering firsthand and our government made me sign a very strong confidentiality agreement um, and keep journalists out. Um, while I was there, they kept Save the Children out. How do we um, make sure the general public knows the pain and suffering that's happening in these camps in our name that right now? Um. There's no doubt, is there, anymore, about what's happening? I mean, I, I, is there any doubt? I mean, there was the big expose in The Guardian um, recently. Uh, obviously, no, not everyone reads The Guardian. Um, <laughs> but the idea that the information isn't out there, I think that, you know, some, uh, you know the, the... I guess they're still open, and there's no news that they're closing. Well, Manus sure. is, but Nauru's, no, there's no hope of that closing. Um, so, uh, I mean, they're closed in Howard's days. How do we get back after Howard? How do we get back so they're closed again, is my question. Well, you, <laughs> that, that's a very difficult question to say. I mean, you know, you, you've, got, you've got to try and win over um, either a, a political constituency that the government is, um, uh, wants to keep sweet or enough opposition MPs plus a couple of people who now support the majority um, to put pressure, or um, uh, in, in, in some way shame the government uh, uh, into, into thinking again, uh, while also making the arguments that we've been, we've been making 
um, uh, today. I mean, the fact that the policy has been reversed in the past means that it can, you know, is, is proof positive that, that it can be uh, reversed again in future. And I think it, I mean, I, you know, I hope it will be. We've only got time for one more, unfortunately. The gentleman in the red shirt. Hi. Um, I'm totally pro the movement of people everywhere. Now, I talk to, the, to a lot of people here about it. And I think the unspoken, non-PC answer that I always get is that the people will come predominantly from Indonesia or from Muslim countries, and then our freedom of our social freedoms will be coerced, and and people would be like, will become like a, an Islamic country with no freedoms, and that because we are only 20 million people, you could become a sizable minority that could take on the parliament and all of that. So, what are your thoughts? about changing the face of Australia? Well, I mean, first of all, the face of Australia is, is changing all the time, um, not just because people arrive, but because people have kids and because people themselves change, and therefore the idea that there's some kind of fixed station um, uh, is clearly um, a myth. But in terms of, you know, the, this has come down to the barbarian of the gates idea, the idea that there's a mass of people who are all moving with the same purpose to undermine society, that once they get here, they don't change at all by being by being in Australia, and then somehow they uh, get together in order to change the nature of Australia in a negative way. And I show you, show me evidence about the, around the world of where um, uh, that is happening or has happened. The, rea the reality is that you know the people who migrate um, are generally moving. Um, uh, with good intentions, which is that they want a, a better life for themselves or they're fleeing uh, persecution and, and, and so on. Uh, and when they do arrive, um, uh, they change. Uh, and uh, at the same time, you know, Australia has a strong constitutional framework, um, which means that all these fears um, are you know, simply um, paranoia. If you want to continue this conversation... Philippe will be in a panel discussion about this very topic tomorrow here on stage between two and, and three if you, want, uh, if you want some more. But in the meantime, can I ask you to thank very warmly Philippe Legrand. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.